Well, a very good evening to you. As Joe said, my name's Tom. I'm an assistant pastor here at Life in Your Church. So I want to begin tonight by talking to you about one of my favorite directors, film directors, uh, and he's called Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan, you may well have heard of him. Uh, he's probably most famous for his trilogy of Batman films, which I think was so good that I don't think I'm ever going to see another Batman film. I know there's a new one out now. I sort of think Batman has been done for me. So he's, he's famous for that. But he's also done lots of other really good films. The Prestige, one of his lesser-known ones, Two Warring uh, Magicians, Inception, which is one of my favorite films, brilliant film. And what's amazing about Christopher Nolan is, is that so much of his films revolve around time. Revolve around time and what he does with time. So Interstellar, another great film. Uh, it's about a guy who flies through a wormhole, as you do. But again, on the different planets they go to, time operates at different speeds. So people start to age faster or slower than other people. Dunkirk, 2017. There's three different timelines all happening at the same time. One that's a week, one that's a day, I think, and one that's an hour. And they all culminate at the same time. He's a very bright man. One is Memento, one of his first ones in 2000. And that has two sequences, one in black and white that's shown chronologically, and one that's in color that is going backwards. But they're both going forwards, if that makes sense. It's really weird, but it's an amazing film. So if you haven't seen that, I recommend it. Uh, I don't really know how he manages to do it in a mass market, uh, big cinema way, but he pulls it off. And uh, so much of what his films involve involves looking back to learn about what's happening or getting a glimpse of what has happened and then coming back to learn again. And by way of introduction, I want to say to us, that the Christopher Nolan films are a great window into how we should read the Bible. Because it's a huge collection of books all woven together with a singular narrative. All of the Old Testament pointing forward and then fulfillment in the New Testament. And so when we read the Bible, there are always several contexts that we need to be aware of. A bit like if you're watching a Christopher Nolan film. There are several timelines that we need to be aware of. So... Here are three contexts that we should bear in mind when we're reading the Bible. The first one is the close context. Context. So when we look down at the words on the page in front of us, we need to understand their immediate context. What do these words mean? Then there's the continuing context. The Bible is an unfolding story. So we need to look back to understand what has already happened, what has taken place, to fully understand the words. And then lastly, the complete context. The Bible is centered on Jesus. So when we read a passage, we can also look ahead to see how it will find its fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, there's a great book called Christ from Beginning to End that maps uh, the story of the Bible focused on Jesus. And it has this really helpful analogy where it says, if you imagine you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, I did get into jigsaw puzzles in lockdown. Uh, I bought a few on Amazon. Um, and if you're doing a jigsaw, to, uh, to do it properly you would pick up a piece and you would need to study the piece and the shape. That would be the close context. You need to look at the thing in front of you and see what it means. Then they say we need to look at what you've already done. What, what have you already completed in the puzzle? Where will this piece that you're holding fit into it? That would be the continuing context. And then you need to look at the picture on the box. You need to see where it's going, the complete context, unless you're one of those 
uh, maniacs that does one of those baked beans puzzles, and then <laughs> looking at the uh, looking at the box wouldn't really help, would it? So, um, so look down, look back, and look ahead. Three helpful things for us: look down, look back, and look ahead. And when we think about the Bible, a, another good way to think about it is this: there's a relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is a promise and fulfillment structure. So the Old Testament is full of promise, and the New Testament is full of fulfillment through Jesus. And another tool that we can use is called typology. Now, this is a bit of a weird word. We don't tend to use it uh, in common parlance. But what typology, if you think of the word typical, it, it could be helpful to you. So when we say the word typical, we mean it has a certain pattern. So you could say it's typical for uh, the English batting lineup to collapse in cricket. Wrong crowd. But okay, if you liked cricket, that, that would be typical. Or you could say it's typical for it to rain in Manchester, maybe, you know. Uh, Aston Villa lose. We won 4 0, but you know, so wrong weekend for that. But yeah, historic in my lifetime, basically, yeah, that would, be, that would be fair. You can think of your own typology right now, maybe. Um, so that, so that, the word typical can help us there. So typology nearly always refers in the Bible to. Uh, things that have happened often in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus. And often the New Testament writers will explain that as they wrote their letters. And there's often three categories of typology, people, events, and institutions. People, event, and institutions. And in Jesus, the center of God's plan, we see the fulfillment of every biblical type. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. So often we get people in the Old Testament who function as a type that point to Christ. They function as a type that point to Christ. Uh, Tim Keller gives this amazing summary. He said this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood that cries out for acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Adam who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he would go to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was sacrificed for us all. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserved, so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. It's amazing. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who now mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the only truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a finger to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the ultimate storm so we could be brought in. And it goes on and on. It's amazing. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks as we look ahead to Easter is we're just going to pick three Old Testament characters and look at them and ask a question, what can they teach us about why Jesus had to die on the cross for us? It's going to be interesting, hopefully.
<laughs> you can let me know afterwards. So as I say, that, and that, and that was just the, the, uh, the people type. We also have institutions and events. So an event would be the Passover and the Exodus. You have, you have, you have the people of God who escape judgment and are delivered from captivity. Can you see the parallel to Jesus? At institutions, Jesus came and fulfilled the role of prophet, priest, and king that we see in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the role of the temple. No longer did we need to gather in a certain place to encounter God. We now are with God, and the Holy Spirit is is in us. It goes on. So I hope you see where we're going. So tonight, I'm going to take us back to the beginning. That sounds like the start of a song. I don't know if it is, but we're going to go back to Genesis and into the garden. And if you open up uh, the Bible, or if you flick the Bible to page one, who do we meet first? We meet God. God is the first person we meet. And that's a really big clue that God is the most important person in the Bible. It's all about him. And he's not an impersonal force. He's not a, dis- a distant character. But he's a very, very personal being of majestic power. He's transcendent. He's separate from his creation. And as we read the creation story, which you may well have heard before, we read that he creates humans, male and female, in his image. You and me were created in the image of God. And we were created to represent God on earth. And we learn that we were also created for one another. We were created to live in community. And we also learn this very significant truth, that as humans... We were created in Adam, in Adam. So Adam isn't merely the first human being that God made. He serves as sort of humanity's covenant head and representative. And this is a really significant role as the Bible returns to it again and again. And that would eventually be fulfilled in Jesus. And in fact, Adam's role stands in direct contrast to that of Jesus who became the first fruits of the new creation, the Bible tells us. So we are all in Adam by our natural birth, but then through a spiritual birth, we can enter into Christ. And that is the invitation to each one of us. I think of that amazing um, passage in John 3, where Jesus meets Nicodemus. Nicodemus was part of the uh, cultural and religious elite, and so he meets Jesus after hours. You know, when everyone's shut up and gone home because he couldn't be seen meeting him. And he says, you know, and he asks Jesus about what he's been preaching. And Jesus says to him, you must be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus had been born. He was of Adam. And Jesus said, you must be born of the Spirit into me to find life. So I'm going to read Romans 5 to us. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Romans 5, 12. I'm going to read it to us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even after those whose sinning was not the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. I'm not making it up. It's in there. It's great. (laughs) But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Give me a modest and a quiet amen to that. Come on. So through Adam, sin and death entered the world. And therefore we all, as humanity, stand condemned because we continued living in sin and disobedience. One man's disobedience changed the story for us all. But then through Christ, the free gift of grace that he won for us makes us righteous again in the eyes of God. This time one man's, diso- one man's obedience changes the story for us all. See, Adam was given three roles in the garden. A priestly role to mediate God's presence to the world to expand the garden. A priestly role. He was given a kingly role to have dominion over all of God's creation and a prophetic role to speak out God's truth. Adam was a prophet, priest, and king. And as we know, things turned ugly in the garden when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and those roles became corrupted. Adam and Eve believed the lies of Satan and they chose to question God's goodness, his integrity, and his character. And what's amazing, what's not amazing, but what is partly amazing is that even to this day, I would say all sin comes down to that same question. God, are you really good? God, do you have my best interests at heart? And so often we say, you know what, I think I could make a better choice. We question God's goodness and his integrity and his character. And so, as a result of that choice that they made, you could say there were a a fourfold effect of sin. And we should have a little slide for this. So one of the first four was a vertical alienation with God. The relationship with God was broken. You could say there was a horizontal alienation. Relationships from human to human were broken. Internally, alienation inside of us, we know how, how easy it can be to react with self-doubt, self-hatred. And cosmically, the world became broken. We can see it now through environmental damage and all sorts of things that go on. The world became broken. So Adam had failed in his role as a prophet. He was unable to speak God's blessing to the world. He failed in his role as a priest and as a king. And so what we do is, is that when you journey through the Old Testament, you see various people stepping into these roles and doing their best to act out those roles, but ultimately failing in that attempt. So God sent his son Jesus 
to earth to re-establish God's relationship with humanity by perfectly living out those three roles on earth. Prophet, priest, and king. And in doing so, he vertically restored our relationship to God. He horizontally restored our relationship to God. He internally restored our relationship with God. And we will see when he returns how he will cosmically restore our relationship to God. I spoke a few weeks ago in the morning here on the biblical mandate to care for creation. So um, I wasn't going to copy and paste it because we'd be here all night. But if you want to listen to it, I really go more into depth as to why in Jesus we see a man who restored our relationship to nature. It's amazing when you look at it. So check that out if you want to find out more. Vertically, horizontally, internally, and cosmically. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we get an amazing summary of this. And I'm going to read it to you from the message, which is a paraphrase, but I really think the way Eugene Peterson writes it is really helpful. It says this, 1 Corinthians 15. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Wow, that's exciting. There is a nice symmetry in this. Death initially came by a man, and resurrection from death came by a man. Now I'm going to pause there, because sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, I actually sometimes find it easier to believe Jesus was divine, was God. And actually I find it difficult to believe that he also was fully man. I find Jesus' humanity almost more difficult to conceive than I do his divinity. But Jesus was fully man. And he's still fully man now. That's amazing. He, he, he's still fully human and fully God. He didn't sort of like, you know, unzip it as he, as he went up at the end. He's still fully man. And he's by the right hand of the Father as a human and as the Son of God. It's incredible. Everybody dies in Adam. Everybody comes alive in Christ. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first, then those with him at his coming, the grand consummation when, after crushing the opposition, he hands over his kingdom to God the Father. He won't let up until the last enemy is down and the very last enemy is death. And if we skip to verse 45, it says this, we follow this sequence in scripture. The first Adam received life. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Physical life comes first, then spiritual. A firm base shaped from the earth, a final completion coming out of heaven. The first man was made out of earth, and the people since then are earthy. The second man was made out of heaven, and people now can be heavenly. In the same way that we've worked from our earthy origins, let's embrace our heavenly origins. So good. You see, and in the vineyard, we have a theology called the now and the not yet. And what we believe is, is that when Jesus died and was resurrected and when the Holy Spirit was sent, the age to come began at that point. Heaven has already begun, you could say. The age to come began. So all of the powers of the age to come are now available to us now. So that means we can pray for the sick and they can be healed. We can prophesy. We can bring justice and reconciliation, we can rebuild communities. And that is because the power of the age to come, when all those things will be fully fulfilled, are available to us now. But it also means that if we pray for someone and they're not healed, it's okay. Because we can just hang in the mystery. Because it's not up to us. There's no pressure. 
No one gets healed because I do a dance or anything like that. It's always going to be the Holy Spirit. And so we can live in the mystery. And it's so exciting because the, because the powers of the age to come could be ready to break in at any moment. Any moment in your day, you could be walking around and the Holy Spirit just speaks to you. Pray for this person. And they're healed. Give this person an encouraging picture. It's always there. One way I like to think about it is this, is that um, I have an electric car and uh, without getting too nerdy, it doesn't have an engine. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but electric cars don't have an engine. And so if you think of like a petrol car or a diesel car, when you accelerate, a whole lot of things have got to happen before the wheels turn. You know, you, I mean, I'm no engineer. This has probably become come clear, but you have pistons and cylinders and you have gears and you have to work your way up to fifth or sixth gear before you can get the full power. Man, my electric car doesn't do any of that. I touch the accelerator and I'm gone. It's really fast. And so all the power is available to me instantly. 100% of the power of my car is available to me immediately. And so often we live lives a bit like a, a fuel car. We think, okay, my engine's a bit mucky, so I'm just going to cruise in gear two, and I'm not going to expect the full power to come down from heaven until I've, you know, had my MOT. No. We're electric cars of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're electric cars of the Holy Spirit. All of God's power can come immediately to you whenever you pray, your kingdom come. None of that was in my notes, but I'm just going for it. This is great. So anyway, where were we? Yeah, that's quite a good analogy. I like that. That's sort of, yeah. Thank you. So anyway, so I finished reading from 1 Corinthians 15. So back to the point. Sin entered through one man, Adam, when he ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. And as a result, as we've talked about, sin and death entered the world. So Adam didn't die physically that day, but he died spiritually. And those consequences have carried on. And then another man, Jesus, who was fully man, fully man, was sinless. He lived a sinless life as the Son of God, and he paid the penalty for our sin so we can come into the presence of God as redeemed, forgiven children. And this resurrection, the resurrection, was not simply something that happened to Jesus, but an event that set in motion the entire reversal of the curse that Adam enacted. And so when we place our trust in Jesus, we can look forward to the day when we too will be resurrected. We too will be resurrected and forever in his presence, forever with Jesus. You could say it like this, solidarity with Adam leads to death and a perishable body, but solidarity with Christ by faith leads to resurrection and our place in the new creation. There's a book by Tim Keller called Encounters with Jesus, and he says this, at the beginning of history, there was a garden and a command. God put Adam and Eve in that garden, and they were told not to eat of the tree. The direction was this, obey me about the tree, and you will live. Obey me, and I will bless you. But they disobeyed. Now, there was another garden, and a second Adam. He's talking about the garden of Gethsemane there, and another command. Jesus had been sent by the Father to go to the cross, which is also a tree. The command of God to Adam was the prototype for all of his commands to everyone. God always says, in one way or another, obey me 
and I will bless you. You think of Deuteronomy, the blessing and the curse. Obey me and I will bless you. I will be with you. And then here we have the exception. Only once has God said to a human being what he says to Jesus. To the first Adam, he said, obey me about the tree and I will bless you. And Adam didn't do it. But to the second Adam, he says, obey me about the tree and I will crush you. And Jesus did it. Jesus is the first and last person in history to be told that obedience would bring a curse. The Father is saying, if you obey me, if you are faithful to me, I will forsake you and send your soul into hell. And yet, Jesus obeyed. Even as he was dying, he called, my God, words that in the Bible are covenantal language. Even though he was being forsaken, Jesus still obeyed. This is astonishing. To all of humanity, God has said, obey me and I will bless you. And Jesus came and he said, obey me and you will die. For the sake of all others. And then he rose again to restore us to God. Jesus went through the worst imaginable pain for us. He did it for you. Every single one of you, he did it. And the consequences and the effects of that, we will never fully understand. But one of them is this. When you are going through the fire in your life, when you are going through horrendous challenge, you can know that the God who created the universe has been through worse when he came to earth. And he did it so that when you do go through challenge, you can say, God, I know you are here with me. Because you've been through it. He didn't deem it acceptable to stand afar. No, he came to earth, born into poverty, to live a life of pain and suffering, joy, sadness. So when we go through it, we have the power of the Holy Spirit with us so we can overcome. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. What a thing. What a thing to have. And so I asked you tonight, do you, are you aware Have you stepped into the peace with God that has been won for you? Because we can spend so much energy and time in our lives trying to make peace with God ourselves. And there is only one way we can achieve it. It's coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to invite the band up when they get a second. We're just going to welcome the Holy Spirit and we're going to move into some ministry time. And I want to take us back again to what I mentioned at the start, that encounter in John 3 when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. And Jesus says this to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So why don't we stand, if you're able, 
and we're going to just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Because we all were born into the lineage of Adam. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what we've looked at tonight. But we all can choose to be born again into the lineage of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We welcome your presence. And we just want to make space for what you want to do and what you want to speak to us tonight. Maybe as you've been listening, you know that in your heart, you've been trying to make peace with God on your own terms or through your own effort. And maybe you've come to a place where you've realized you can't do it. And you can't do it alone. And so the invitation tonight is to welcome Jesus into your life and be born again by the Holy Spirit. So as we respond, you might want to put your hands out in front of you. It's, it doesn't, it, it's just a choice, but what we do with our bodies sort of matters, and it's just a sign to the Holy Spirit, that we, just a sign of welcoming. And so, Father, I pray for those here tonight at home who know that they need peace with God. They are longing for peace. Well, we pray, would you come and meet them now? by the power of your Holy Spirit.